0: It's nice to be here with you in a uh, holiday time. We have a big, big holiday tomorrow, and I'm happy to be here talking about it this morning. If you have a Bible and wish to be following along, I'm going to be in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to the end. So I'll let you have a chance to, to turn there. If, you're con- if your mind is searching for what holiday tomorrow is, <laughs> It's, the, it's one of the biggest ones of the church calendar. It's All Saints Day. And as throughout the year we celebrate the history of various believers and their uh, participation and example in the faith, we have times that we celebrate John the Baptist or, or uh, Luke the Evangelist. We just passed on October 18th. I like that one. Um, you know, he's got a good name. And... Uh, Tomorrow is All Saints where we celebrate the whole church, not just one at a time, one believer at a time, but all the believers, those living and those gone before us. This is a special day in our house as well. 15 years ago today, our second child was born. So we're celebrating a birthday today for Evangeline. Very excited about that. and she's excited to have cake and candy. So this is a, a good day for us. 14 years ago today, we were expecting our third child, and about four weeks later found out that the child had not, had not survived. And we had to go through the painful process of, of losing uh, the, first, the first of our miscarried children. Uh, Miscarriage is something that frequently is not talked about in church. Uh, Some churches may be more than others and I don't think of course that anyone is under any obligation as soon as they suffer through such an event to just come uh, announce it to everyone so there's no pressure here in what I'm saying but what I do want to think about here for a moment is the culture of church in which we ask the question Is the child that was lost a member of the church? And my answer, of course, is yes. You lost a member of the church when you lost the child. Uh, And I will talk about that as we talk about 1 Corinthians 11 in a moment. Um, But before we go any farther, I I remember that I've come up here and I haven't prayed. So I want to start by praying and asking God to bless the reading of his word. Father, thank you for this day, for this assembly of believers and for your Holy Spirit who is here with us. The word of Jesus Christ coming to our hearts. I pray that you will encourage us about the members of the church and that you love us and that we can look around and recognize who belongs to your body. And I thank you for this and ask you to bless us, that you would speak for yourself and that that anything that I would say that would be in the way of your word, would be stripped from our minds. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, um, having, having said that, I, uh, I want to get to this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. It is about the Lord's table. Now this, this is one of those passages that may be one of the Bible passages that gives people pause, makes them worry a bit when they come to church and they're like, oh, Lord's Supper, and especially... In my upbringing, where the Lord's Supper was only had four times a year. And when you had it, you had to, they talked a lot about the cross and you had to think really hard about how bad your sins were and make sure that you really felt like you were participating in the grief of what you had done to Jesus in order to get to the table. And I, and I, and I don't say that mockingly, but what I am talking about is the sense that When I come to the Lord's table, how do I know I'm worthy to come to the Lord's table? Do I deserve to be there? Of course, we believe we're sinners. So in some way, we should say, I'm not worthy to come to the Lord's table. So how can anyone come to the Lord's table? And yet, when we come to church, we are assured of God's pardon. And so in another sense, since this is a meal that teaches us that Jesus graciously has forgiven us, If you're a a believer, you should be able to freely come to the Lord's table without any sense of reservation. Your sins are forgiven. What prevents you from coming to the Lord's table? And yet this passage that we're about to read is a passage that prevents many, many Christians from coming to the Lord's table. Because this passage says that you need to eat and drink the Lord's meal in a manner worthy. Right? And it says that you should examine yourselves. And for those reasons alone, a lot of people refrain or they feel afraid that maybe they've done, this week I've done more heinous sins than in the past or this week I'm ex- I'm a, I've, I have especially sinned against God and so I am more dirty, I am more prevented somehow. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not in this passage say that anyone can abstain from the table. It says, repent from your sins, right? It doesn't say if you've sinned, this week don't partake as if like an extra week's gonna make you cleaner. (laughs) It's not time that, time does not, may heal all wounds but it does not forgive all sins. Time doesn't forgive your sins. The blood of Jesus forgives your sins. And if the blood of Jesus has forgiven your sins, you are free to come to the Lord's table. What's holding you back? Is it that you're cherishing your sins so you don't want to confess and repent yet? Well, if that's the case, you should be afraid. This passage says that sometimes people have gotten sick and even died from coming in a a bold way, ignoring their sin to the Lord's table. But it doesn't say that you should not take the Lord's Supper on those Sundays and hope that a couple weeks later you'll be have diluted the, the power of that sin over time. It says not to commit those sins and repent because you want to eat the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. You don't have a right really not to take the Lord's Supper. If you've come to church, you have come to this judgment. And if the blood of Jesus is on you, then the angel of death passes over the house. Do you remember that from the uh, Exodus? The, who was worthy of God? No one. But if you were in the house with the blood over the door, the angel of the Lord passed over the house. So your sins will not get you when you come to the Lord's table. You will be judged. You know the, the word for, the, for Sunday is the Lord's Day? but that that's a term in the Old Testament for the day of judgment? The day of the Lord. We have come to judgment, and he comes to us. The angel of the Lord comes to us and says, I recognize the blood of Jesus here. Please be welcomed to the table of the Lord. So I want to read a scary passage, and not only do I want to tell you you are safe as you confess and repent from your sins, but I want to tell you that this passage also does not prevent the largest group of Christians who have historically been prevented from the Lord's table, which is our children. This passage has historically been used to keep baptized children from the Lord's table. And that's a mistake that comes to us all the way down from, dare I say it, John Calvin, who uh, we do certainly want to honor on... uh, on Reformation Day, but when it comes to All Saints Day, he needs a little rebuke. Okay, So we will will look at that momentarily. Let's actually look at the Bible passage. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 and following. In the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you can't come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. Thanks be to God. All right. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does that mean? This is actually the verse that gives rise to Uh, in, in the Roman Catholic Church the idea that if you do not understand the doctrine of transubstantiation correctly you can't take part of the meal Right, because it says if you don't recognize the body you don't get the supper and so they read that to say that if you don't recognize that that bread is Jesus' body literally then you don't get to participate because you would somehow be profaning the meal what about the wine though? Does it say if you do not recognize the blood? It doesn't. It says you, should, you must recognize the body. The key to that question is the idea that it is not referring to the meal. It is referring to the participants. When it says if you do not recognize the body, it's saying if you do not recognize who is in the body of the church, then you are going to eat and drink judgment to yourself. You know, uh, in, in chapter 10, in chapter 10, it tells us we have one loaf, therefore we are one body. Chapter 12, you know, 1 Corinthians 12 is famous for being the, tr- the, uh, the passage about spiritual gifts, which are given to who? Members of the body. When you think of the whole doctrine of the body of Christ, what passage comes to mind? It's 1 Corinthians 12. So the intensity of the idea that this is a body member, that's a body member, that's a body member, is this exact context, chapter 10 and chapter 12. And here he says, if you don't recognize who is in the body, then you will be drinking judgment to yourself. Let me prove that to you again uh, uh, through another part of this passage. The very last verses of the chapter. As I said before, he does not say, if you think you're unworthy this week, then this week sit out. Don't have the meal. Instead, his warning is this, so then my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So the error I've been talking about, the one I've been warning you, I want to reiterate it for you one more time beware lest you do not wait for each other at the meal. Well, wait for whom? What was the situation? What was happening in their day? He says that one of you, in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, another goes hungry, another gets drunk. So the the Christians of this day were not... uh, not going to big buildings that they had built already and having their organized system of pews and uh, here's the front rail and here you walk up and now you get the, here's the bread and here's the wine. We're meeting in people's homes at this point. And if you're going to have enough room to meet in the homes of other Christians, you're going to meet in the, you're gonna pick the people with the larger homes, right? So this means that Christians, by and large, were meeting in the houses of their wealthier their wealthier uh, members. And the wealthy were used to having, having homes, parties, and people coming in, and they have their wine, they have their food stored. But there are also very poor people in these churches who don't host a lot of house gatherings and who are not really certain what to do. And can you just imagine the sense of there being a little bit of awkwardness of being someone who has gone without in life, having to show up to church at the house of somebody with a lot who's going to be serving you food and bread and wine. In fact, they might have gotten started early eating their own meal while they're setting up the food. And by the time church is there, they're a little tipsy. They know they're supposed to be setting out the wine and they're having a bit of it along the way. And by the time the poor get there, some of the wine's it's gone. In fact, the people went ahead and ate the food. Some people are now going hungry because they came to church, aren't sure what to do. You've got the rich drunk people in the inside who are full. And now, well, there's nothing left over for the poor who came to the meal. That's a That is a situation worthy of a massive rebuke from Paul. That is, what are you doing? That's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. That's something else. I don't know what it is, but it's not the Lord's Supper because that's not how he would conduct it, right? This Jesus, Jesus was a big proponent of going and eating in people's houses with them and saying, reserve the best spots for the poor, right? Don't serve the best spots for the people who already have everything. Serve the best seats for the poor. But that's not what the, for, the Corinthians are doing. They have forgotten who they are as a body. And they are not waiting on each other. And because they are not waiting on each other, they are not recognizing who is in the body. They're not recognizing who deserves to share equally in the forgiveness of Jesus displayed in the body and blood. Of Jesus on the cross, here represented in the blood, the the wine, and the bread. And so when they take this meal and they use this meal that is meant to be a symbol of the union of all the believers, a symbol that we all have one bread, and so we are one body, or we have one drink and we are one spirit. We partake of one spirit. We use a meal of unity and we are actually using it as a way to, let's just bless the rich and forget the poor. Turn it into a meal of disunity. Then that great hypocrisy has turned the symbol of the meal on its head. And Paul says, God is not honoring that. And because of that, some of you have gotten sick, it even died. That's dangerous. Recognize who is really in the body. Do you remember when Peter in Galatia, not in Galatia, but in Antioch? I said Galatia because Paul relates the story in the book of, of Galatians. Peter, he says that at Antioch, Peter had gotten afraid because some of the party of the circumcision had come around the proponents of a a Christianity that was more defined by Jewish markers than by belief in the Gospel. And so he had gotten afraid and had started to kind of withdraw from the Gentiles in the midst of the group. Kind of holding himself, uh, let's, I'll just kind of stand by my Jewish brothers over here. And when they come to the Lord's table, started to exclude Gentiles from the Lord's table, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he was in the wrong. And I said to him, you who are a Jew, live like a Gentile, but you want these Gentiles to have to live like Jews before you'll accept them at the meal? Peter, that's wrong. You need to recognize who is in the body. You don't get to separate out classes of Christians. Remember that that line about there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free? That's not saying there is no such thing as masculinity and femininity. There are different roles the bible literally gives us different roles in the new testament for men and women there is literally a difference between parents and children children obey your parents so there are things that are different roles in the church but in terms of access to salvation symbolized here there is one class and that is the believer all believers have access to the table because they have the holy spirit They've been marked with baptism. And this is an important thing to recognize, especially in churches that baptize our children. You know, your children have access to the Lord's table. They have access to the Lord's table, not because they're your children, but because they belong to Jesus. Now, they have access to baptism, we know because they are your children. We know because they are your children that we are supposed to, Say, God is your God. Hear, O Israel. What is it Shema says? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God alone. And you shall, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And you shall teach these things diligently to your children. The law says that when you have circumcised in the Old Testament, circumcised your children into the covenant, And that, of course, extends, that's a symbol for the family. So the girls were also included in Israel when they were born. You are to turn to these children and diligently, how often? When you rise up and when you lie down and when you go out and when you come in and you shall bind them as frontlets to your foreheads and to your wrists and you shall put them on your doorposts. That's how often. I I don't know what that was, I counted like seven things maybe there, times a day that you're supposed to teach these things to your kids. In case you thought that maybe that accidentally they included kids, Moses tells them over and over a day I want you to say to your children what? Hear O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. He's our God. I just included my children in that word our. And then I say to them, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. So, my children, the Lord is your God. You must love him with all your heart. And you know in the Old Testament, you get to the Passover, who is allowed to eat the Passover? Exodus 12, 47 says all, the, all of Israel must eat the Passover. Everybody in the, in the, in the covenant had to eat the meal. Do you know what Pharaoh tried to do to the people when they were leaving? This is, uh, shows up in, in Exodus 10. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, we've got to go three days' journey out to this mountain and eat this meal. And Pharaoh says, I don't know about that. Uh, here's an idea of Moses. Just the men. Just the men go. And he says to him, no, no, Pharaoh, we must go with our young and our old, with our men and our women, with our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast of the Lord. So, right, because it's a feast, the old and the young have to be there. The men and the women have to be there, and we've got to have the stuff to eat. So that's the rules, Pharaoh. We don't make the rules. We just follow them. God said everybody has to go. And he says... Far be it from me if I should let your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind here. That's actually what it says. This time I'm not paraphrasing. And uh, he drove them out from his presence, it said, in his anger. What was the devil here in this story? Who's the devil in this story? And what is he saying? Far be it from me if I should let your little ones go to a feast of the Lord. You've got an evil purpose in mind here. Well, from your perspective, Pharaoh, we do have an evil purpose in mind. We intend to take our children out to that mountain, and we're not coming back. Because they belong out there with us. They belong in freedom from Pharaoh. They belong in freedom from sin. They are with us at the meal of the Lord. And when they get to that meal in Exodus 12, we hear the instructions, all of Israel must eat the Passover, and it's the same in the New Testament, except what about 1 Corinthians 11, because John Calvin writes a a long paragraph about this in which he says, well, yes, we do mark our children with baptism. He says, we do mark our children with baptism and, of course, show them that they are a part of Christ and they are regenerate, right? So Calvin's going out of his way to say, when we baptize our children, we're saying they're saved. They have the Holy Spirit, they belong to Christ, they are part. But the Lord's Supper, he says, is different. And why does he say that it's different? He says, well, of course, this passage tells us a number of reasons that they shouldn't eat the Lord's Supper. is there any way I could get some water? My tongue is sticking. Um, It says in this passage, first of all, one of the things that it says in this passage is that when as often as you eat and drink this meal, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thank you. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And of course, so that's a requirement for the meal is you have to be old enough to proclaim. Right. So that's one of his one of his qualifications. But the passage doesn't say if you don't, aren't old enough to proclaim, you cannot participate in the symbol. It says when you use this symbol, this symbol proclaims the Lord's death. Right. So co- as a community, when we do this, it proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. It doesn't say if you're not capable of processing the right words out of your mouth in proclamation that you're prevented. Of course, if that were the case, why would we let children come to the baptismal table? Are they, able, are they capable in their infancy of proclaiming their salvation? And yet we believe the Bible says they're included. Another thing that he points out in this passage is that it says <clears throat> that it says do this in remembrance of me. So unless you're old enough to remember, he says, how can we ask children who are not old enough to old enough to speak in logic to remember things that they have not yet been able to understand us telling them. Well, how many of you remember the Lord's death? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Right? Were you? So does anyone here remember the Lord's death? Okay, now, this passage is not even saying that at all, because the word is not remembrance. It's a mistranslation. The word is memorial. Memorial. It's onamnason. If you look that word up, if you look up the word nason in the Old Testament, you'll find that uh, the word is used for memorials. There's uh, two places specifically, and I I know I I failed to write them down. I think one is Leviticus 24. Um, So I'm going to peek really fast to see if my memory is serving me properly. Leviticus 24 says see if I can actually uh, find the verse. And I believe it is in this passage. Yes, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, that's it, for, as food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. So what is this? We just have been told about the Sabbath day bread. This is our Sabbath day bread, right? So this is, what do we have happening in Leviticus 24? They're going to take 12 loaves. All right, 12. Quick question, what does 12 represent? Tribes. Tribes of Israel. So what are they placing on the table? They're placing a representative for each tribe of Israel before the Lord as a memorial offering. All right, who is going to remember what? The point of this bread is every Sabbath, there's bread placed before the Lord that reminds the Lord of his people. It doesn't remind the people of the Lord, it reminds the Lord of the people. Another, uh, another passage, and I'm, I'm afraid that I will, I will have to just ask you to look this up. There's a passage about the, the use of trumpets. And that the blowing of the trumpets is a memorial blowing. They do it over the memorial offering. And it says, and when you blow this trumpet as a memorial, the Lord will remember you. This word, anamnesin, and this is what the... Septuagint Greek version of the Old Testament uses this exact word. is the only places this is used in the the Old Testament, except for in two headings of some psalms. The word onumnesion is a memorial that calls the people to God's mind. Jesus says, and this is how this this Greek is rendered in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, as often as you do, he says, do this, emu. Uh, do this unto my memorial, or properly rendered, do this as my memorial. Which means, every time you eat this, you do this in order to call the mind of the Lord to you. You're doing this to remind God that you belong to him. And he will come down and he will judge you and say, ah, I see the blood of my son. You are mine. You are mine. So nobody in the church is prevented from eating it by not being able to remember something that happened 2,000 years ago. But as they grow up eating it, they certainly will remember all the times they've eaten it. And come to remember that they have been forgiven and pronounced holy over and over and over. Another thing that this passage says is, let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup, right? So now this is we're getting deeper into the problem, right? Are you old enough to examine yourself for your sin? So what if you've done something really bad this week and you need to examine yourself? Now, remember, it doesn't say let a person examine himself and then exempt himself if he did something bad. Let a person examine himself and then eat. Right, So he's encouraging us to repent of our sins. But what about the question, do the meals of God endanger the people of God if they have gross, unrepentant sin? And the answer is yes, they do. Chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians gives us example after example of the times when God's people ate a meal and then got in trouble for not really caring about God. Uh, it says, do you remember? Let's, let's think about what they uh, were in the wilderness. Do you remember when they ate? What, what did they eat in the wilderness? Manna. And what did they drink in the wilderness? Do you remember what special spiritual drink they were given? That Moses had to, to touch a rock with his staff and out would flow living water that the people were to drink flowing water. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, right before this, he says, remember how they ate spiritual food and they drank spiritual drink. And yet the Lord was not pleased with them. All right, so before that, right before that, he says, remember how they were all baptized into Moses in the water and the sea, and they." all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. And yet the Lord was not pleased with some of them. So in the Old Testament, Paul's example that proves his case that that we should repent of our sins, he gives us an example of meals that everybody ate. Meals where everybody drank. And of course, this is a passage in the Bible that tells us, that everybody in, everybody in Israel was baptized, even, which includes the children. So this is, if you want to mark it down, 1 Corinthians 10 says, children were baptized in the Lord in the Old Testament. In the case of saying this, though, what has he logically proven to us? <laughs> that God asks for everyone to eat the meal and that the fact that it will be dangerous for the sake of judgment does not prevent God from asking that it be everyone who is at the meal. Now, who got in trouble in the Old Testament? Do You remember the people didn't all make it into the Promised Land? They went out from Pharaoh, they spent how long in the wilderness? 40 years, and when they got there finally, everyone who was how old and older did not get to enter. 20 years old and older. Did not get to enter. Because in that generation, it says they failed to unite their hearts with faith in Hebrews, it tells us. They did not unite God's message with faith. And I don't actually even think that it's literally saying that those people all were not saved. But that they treated him in such a way that he disciplined them (laughs) through keeping them out of the promised land. Who was he gracious to? Well, he was gracious to those 20 years old and younger. Alright, so examination of yourself and the danger of eating of that meal, God's mercy extended to those 20 years old and younger. So what I'm telling you is this, when Paul is saying, watch out, what kind of sins does he say in 1 Corinthians are the ones they need to worry about? Well, I've heard that somebody's coming to church with his arm around his father's wife. That's in 1 Corinthians. I hear that some of you are getting drunk and eating all your rich people food and keeping the poor out. So watch out, little Timmy. Right? Is it the kids who are causing these problems? It's not. It's the grown-ups who are doing gross, high-handed sins against God. It is full, fully knowledgeable, gross, public uh Refusal to follow under God that is being warned against. It's not the regular private sins of the week. It is not the things that you, even if they're terrible, the thing that God is warning against is the public misrepresentation of his name by adults. If we, uh, if we need extra proof, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians that tells us that whenever that uh, that god will give us the grace to stand up under temptation it says in verse 13 no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man god is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it So what Paul says is, you can resist sin. As a Christian, you are able to resist sin because of the power of the Holy Spirit. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can resist. That's a promise for all Christians at all ages. So are we to take a toddler and say, I'm afraid you may contaminate yourself in eating this meal because you might have committed some terrible sins this week. But that verse is true even for the toddler, that God has not allowed... He won't let them to commit a sin at some level that they could not resist. Well, well, what if they did commit the sin? What if you committed a sin this week? Can you come to the Lord's table? Well, how easy is it for you to get out? Well, I claim the blood of Jesus. Well, do they claim the blood of Jesus? We did when we baptized them. We said the blood of of Jesus was on them. The Bible is telling grown-ups not to take a sacred symbol and use it to exclude some of God's people. Ironically, the largest group of those who are excluded from the Lord's table each week in the the Christian church of this day is the children. Now, it may comfort you to know that historically, the Lord's Supper was given to children from the earliest days of the church for 11 centuries. And it had to do with the Second Lateran Council, where they started to remove the Lord's Supper from the laity. Right? Everybody was fine until they started saying, We're kind of worried about people spilling wine and the blood of Jesus on the ground, so we want you to quit giving the wine to the laity. So you just give them bread, because we don't want them to spill the wine. And at that point, instead of taking bread, which may get hard and can be dipped in something soft to make it soft for children to eat, you stop having the availability of being able to just hand this bread to everybody. Do you know in the Eastern church from from the earliest days until now, the first day that they baptize a child, they bring out a spoon and they sprinkle bread crumbs in it and they give that wine and bread to the child because the child is baptized, have to have the Lord's Supper. And that's been a continuous practice for 2000 years. These things, as I mentioned, most of you were there last night. I mentioned John Huss said three centuries later, we have gone really astray by not giving the Lord's Supper to the people. We need to give them the bread as they receive. We need to give them the wine. And we need to make sure it makes its way down to the children again. Even John Calvin mentions this and says, "I know that Augustine says that the children receive the Lord's Supper. I know that Cyprian says that they should receive the Lord's Supper. I know that this has been done at many times, but it was wrong because 1 Corinthians 11 says that they shouldn't receive it." But 1 Corinthians 11 is not warning of anything of the sort. It's telling grown-ups not to exclude their neighbors who belong to Jesus. So you should think about this. Each one of you, before you go into the Lord's Supper, am I sharing with my neighbor who is also a Christian? Because if you don't, if you don't wait for each other, God may judge you. All right. I wanna—I don't want to keep you too long on these ideas, but I do want to, I just want to throw in an added extra. This is, a, this is a birthday cake day for me, so I want to put a little icing on it. I'm not assuming that everyone in this church is coming from the same background. There are some of you who came from their whole lives in the CREC where by and large infant communion is practiced. Some of you come probably from Presbyterian churches where they do what Calvin has said where they give baptism to children but not the Lord's Supper. And some of you might have come from Baptist churches which have even different views. No one is baptized until they're old enough to make a profession of faith. But as soon as they do, everyone gets the Lord's Supper. I grew up as a Baptist and the union of the Lord's Supper and baptism were absolute in a Baptist church. And for that, they should be commended. There is a unity between who is a Christian, who is baptized and who gets the Lord's Supper in a Baptist church. And that's what the Bible teaches, but it doesn't teach us. To wait until people can profess faith rather as with Abraham in Genesis 17 it says I will be God to you and I will be God to your children after you Acts 2 says this promise is for you and for your children but the thing that prevents Baptists and regular regular Presbyterians the largest group of Presbyterians in uh, Christianity today from giving the Lord's Supper is the fear that maybe the children, even though they're marked out in the covenant, are not really believers and they might somehow offend God. And this is the icing. I want to read to you verses from three Psalms, not the whole Psalm, just a little piece. And tell you that this is the liturgy ordained by the Holy Spirit. You're supposed to, as a church, sing these things. I want to skim over Psalm 8. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. What does it say? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have ordained praise to still the enemy and the avenger. Do you know the Bible tells us that when we come to church, we make a spectacle of the demons. They're watching our worship service and they're getting defeated every time that we preach that Jesus Christ has been crucified and their time is over. It says you make a spectacle of the principalities and powers. Do you know what else it says about our worship? When our babies cry in church, it shuts their mouths. When you come to church, you're fighting not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And let me tell you two ways that you can do that. You can preach that Jesus Christ was crucified, and you can baptize your babies and let them cry. Not send them out of the church. I mean, it's okay if a crying mother needs to go nurse somewhere else. But I'm saying, push them out. We don't push them out and say, go somewhere else until you're old enough to understand. That's Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the belief that you have to be smart enough to get God's favor. Christianity is a religion of grace and of family covenant. Psalm 73, not 73, 71. Psalm 71 says in verses 5 and 6, for you, O Lord, are my hope. Now imagine, that, I'll just preface, and then we'll be done after I read these two psalms. You, these are, this is the Holy Spirit's word for the church to sing in church. So imagine that we are, this is, legally we have to do this. This is a requirement. We don't have, there's no way around these things. We get to say these things, and then we have to, after you say them, the second part is you have to believe them. So imagine this, and and of course your children, you're teaching them to say, you're teaching your children to sing psalms as well, right? So tell your children to sing this and then argue with me about this question. For you, O Lord, one more time, let me say this. Imagine this in church out of the mouth of a five-year-old. Because that five-year-old is singing psalms like you told them to because God said diligently teach your children, so you're doing this. And here's the five-year-old in church uttering the legally required words of God. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb, and my praise is continually of you. Similar thought in Psalm 22, and we'll be done. Verses 9 and 10. Out of the mouth of infants and babes. This is the kind of praise that Jesus requires. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Argue with that tell us that we're not supposed well I'm sorry kids you shouldn't say that because it might not be true this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God God expects us to expect that our children are Christians and a good way to keep them Christians and not growing up and running away from the Lord is to hand them grace over and over There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know you sin, but you can be forgiven because you belong to Jesus. God has been your God since before you were born, my child. So when when you sin, go to the Lord. He has been gracious to you since before you were born. Hey, we're going to church. Let's be glad together. That's a great children's hymn. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I'll finish with the words that they're told to say for for the peace offerings when they gather for the peace offerings. You shall eat and you shall drink. You shall eat and you shall drink before the Lord your God. You and your sons and your daughters and you shall rejoice. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful that you are a God who is able to handle worrisome people. First of all, I ask you to remove our sins from us. Give us freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from well-ingrained habitual sins. Break us free of those things because you love us. Private sins, expose them, I pray. Get them out of us. But God, I thank you that you even warn those who are obstinate and are willing to publicly, publicly drag your name through the mud, that they too can repent and come to your table. I pray that we would recognize who is in the body and eat and drink before you and rejoice. I pray that you would help us to recognize those who have gone before us, those who are with us, whether rich or poor, men or women, old or young. And I pray that you would help us not to come to the table in fear, but in the thankfulness, boasting that we belong to Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.